Father, on, on this day in particular, uh, Father's Day, we praise you that we can call you Abba, Daddy, that you are our Father in heaven, a perfect Father. Father, we do thank you for our earthly fathers. They, uh, they nurture us as they know best, Father, uh, flawed vessels and yet a blessing to us. Lord, we would pray for them today, give them wisdom, give them uh, a deeper longing and desire for Christ. Uh, Father, bless them and, and bless us through them. But uh, Father, we think of you as our ultimate Father this day as well. As we turn our attention to your Word, Lord, we pray that we would hear your voice in your Word and by your Spirit that you would speak to us. Help us to know your fatherly care for us and Lord, uh, your desire for our lives, uh, for their flourishing, and for your glory. And so, Lord, speak to us and enable us, inspire us to respond. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I've entitled this sermon, uh, Grace, Faith, and Works, and uh, many of our problems stem from getting the relationship between these three concepts wrong. My roommate in college was a good friend of mine. He was also a Christian at the time. He grew up in a, a church. We attended the same church in college and were involved in a campus ministry together. And as we got to know each other, at, at some point uh, along the way, he shared how one particular aspect of his understanding of God had changed since uh, his time in high school, just a few years uh, before uh, Eric grew up in a Bible teaching church, and I assume it was a faithful Bible teaching church, and they had impressed on him the importance of his relationship with God and uh, what it uh, meant to try to honor God and glorify God with your life, the importance of nurturing your relationship with God. And so as Eric grew in these convictions, uh, he knew that he needed to spend time in the Word. And so he, brought, uh, he, he got involved in some daily rhythms of Bible reading as a high school student. And he was faithful in this. Uh, he went, uh, after he began starting, he went uh, about a year without missing a single day. And, uh, and then he missed, you know, as, as happens. But that day, uh, he got involved in a car accident. And that shocked him. He thought, well, maybe God is getting my attention and I, and I need to double down and, and recommit to this practice of Bible reading. So he did. And, and again, went a year or so, almost a year, and, and missed again. And I kid you not, another car accident. And so, and this just reinforces to Eric that, that God will bless me if I do the right things, and if I mess up, God is going to be quick to bring the hammer and, uh, and correct me. Now, Eric's, Eric's example is a bit extreme, right? I mean, uh, most of us don't believe that if we don't read our Bible, God is going to cause a car accident to, to get our attention. But, but truth be told, Many people, even Christians in Bible-believing churches, churches, believe at some level God blesses us based on our performance, that His delight in us is tied to our good works, and that we could expect trouble if we sense we're falling short. Now, I think this faulty belief explains why some of us feel like second-class Christians, there's some sin in your life, perhaps, some, some serious sin back in the day um, that you just can't get beyond. And, and, and you have the sense that God just doesn't love me as much as He could. 
because of that. You don't deserve His favor because of what you did in the past. Maybe you're here and, and you're not a Christian. You're here exploring issues of faith and spirituality, and, and perhaps for those very same reasons, you may think that you can't meet God's standards, and therefore, you don't deserve His love. It explains, on the other hand, why some of us may feel superior and judgmental towards others. We're keeping score, and, and uh, we think as we look around the room that I'm doing pretty good compared to these other folks around me. Both of those are forms of legalism, where, where we think God's favor for us is connected to our performance. And the only difference between a person who feels guilty on one hand and a person who is proud on the other is how well you perceive your doing how well you perceive you're performing. The person thinks that at least at some level, faith and our good works earn God's grace at some level. It's, it's just a faulty view. But there's, there's an opposite error. A lot of people think that God's grace means our good works don't matter at all. If you have faith, you're forgiven, and so it doesn't matter what you do. We could call this idea licentiousness. That's a, it's kind of a big word, kind of a, a word that you don't use every day, but someone who believes that the gospel gives us license to sin. We're just free to continue to sin. You might hear it called antinomianism in some, some circles, in some Christian books that you might read, nomos. It's the Greek word for law, so anti-nomos, against the law. This this idea that God's grace eliminates the need for good works. You're free to continue doing whatever it was you were doing that God forgave you for. The legalist and the antinomian both get the relationship between grace and faith and works wrong. And it has devastating effects on their relationship with God and, and the quality of their life as they, as they uh, go through the world. Well, thankfully, God has made the relationships between these three things clear for us. It's, it's pretty straightforward in the Scriptures. And so once we get our head around it, our challenge is to really, truly believe it, that God relates to us in the way that He describes in this passage. It's, it's counterintuitive. No one relates to us consistently the way God relates to us. And so everything in our world reinforces that we have to prove ourselves, that we have to earn someone's approval, someone's love. But that's not how God relates to us. It's not how He treats us. Listen to how He treats us. In Ephesians 2, beginning in verse 8, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not from yourselves, it's the gift of God. Not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. This passage is crystal clear that we're saved by grace, we're saved through faith, and we're saved for good works. And so let's take these ideas up one at a time. First, we're saved by grace. The Scripture says, for it is by grace you have been saved, and this is not from yourselves. It's the gift of God. Now, 
Pastor Peter has been unpacking this idea for the last couple of weeks from uh, the first seven verses in Ephesians chapter 2. And in, in many respects, verses 8 and 9 are a summary of what Paul has been saying in those first seven verses. And, and like a good doctor who gives the person with cancer the bad news so that they know what they need to do to pursue a cure, in a similar way, God makes it clear in the first three verses of Ephesians 2 what we need to be saved from. And when we understand it, it becomes obvious that we can only be saved by grace, not anything we can do for ourselves. I mean, it must have been grace because verse 1 tells us that all of us, all of us in this room, were dead in our transgressions and sins. Not mostly dead, right? Like Wesley in The Princess Bride after he was tortured. For those of you who who have seen that film, you, you remember the scene if you've seen the film, right? After telling Inigo Montoya that Wesley was only mostly dead... Miracle Max explains the difference. He says there's a big difference between mostly dead and all dead. Now, mostly dead is slightly alive. Now, all dead, well, with all dead, there's usually only one thing you can do. Go through his change and look for loose coins. We were spiritually dead, friends. Not sick. Not mostly dead, but dead. And because our sin had killed our relationship with God, we didn't want Him. Not on His terms, right? We couldn't want Him. As Pastor Peter explained a few weeks ago, uh, if you give a, a corpse an adrenaline shot, it has no effect. We can't respond if we're spiritually dead. It must have been God's grace and not our good works because in verse 2 we're told that we had bound ourselves to Satan to make a world where God is not honored or talked about, where Jesus Christ is not worshipped. It must have been God's grace and not our good works because in verse 3 we're told our very passions, desires, and the things that captivate our thoughts put us at odds with God, make us deserving of His wrath. His judgment. The only way we can possibly be saved is if God is gracious and if He does something outside of us for us. And verses 4 through 7 tell us what He did. It begins with those gospel words, but God. We were dead in our sins, but God made us alive with Christ. We were powerless in our slavery to the world and to the devil, but God raised us up and seated us with Christ in the heavenly realms. We were condemned as objects of God's wrath, but God poured out His mercy on us. God saves us, the text tells us, by uniting us with Christ. All of this is in Christ, through Christ, with Christ, Uh, Through our relationship with Jesus, His life becomes our life. His righteousness becomes our righteousness. His Father becomes our Father. His inheritance becomes our inheritance. Everything He gets, we get. This is what our salvation is, friends. And when you understand this, you begin to realize that there is nothing you could ever do to contribute to this. It stands on its own as a gift 
a free gift. It has nothing other than God's great love and rich mercy, which made us alive together with Christ. This should give you great comfort and confidence because what you need more than anything else is available to you for free. It's a gift. You don't have to, to, to contribute to it. It's, it's free. There's nothing you can do to earn it. When we uh, lived in Colorado, um, a couple of, couple of moves ago, we lived in Colorado, and we had friends from Liberia, and uh, this, uh, this man's Tony's, his niece, living back in Liberia, um, somehow drank some lye that was sitting around their house, and it burned her esophagus, and she was in serious health concern. She, she was going to die unless she received some medical treatment that was only available in the United States. Now, of course, this family in Liberia couldn't afford it, and, and they had no means to get it on their own. But as people who knew uh, Tony and his wife uh, heard about this, various churches mobilized to create a trust where people contributed money and, and, and helped them navigate all the legal issues to get uh, Mama to, to come to Colorado where she was able to receive the treatment. It was a gift, unearned. She had no capacity to get it on her own, and it saved her life. That's a picture of how God reaches down and pulls us out of where we're at on our own by our own fallen nature. And as I said, all of this is a summary of, of what Paul has been talking about already up to this point. What verse 8 adds that is unique is our second point. Not only are we saved by grace, we're saved through faith. We're saved through faith. Faith is the means of our salvation. It's the, it's the way we receive it. And this is important. You're not saved by your faith. You're not saved by your faith. Your faith is not what saves you. Jesus is what saves you. Right? You're saved by God's grace, His gift. You receive the grace of salvation through faith. Okay? So now, what does faith entail? It, it surely includes content. Right? We have to understand some things. Uh, we have to understand that Jesus is the Son of God and the Savior of sinners and that He lived and died on the cross and rose from the dead for our salvation. But it's, it's more than simply knowing content, data. A lot of people know the content of the gospel, but don't believe it. And so not only do you have to know some things, you, you have to believe some things, but it's also more than belief. I mean, the, the book of James tells us that belief in and of itself qualifies you to be a demon. Even, even the demons believe. Saving faith includes both knowledge of gospel content and belief that that content is true, but more than that, saving faith is ultimately about trust. It's actually acting on that knowledge and belief by entrusting yourself to Jesus, whom you recognize alone can save you. And so, this is a, a helpful illustration for me as I was learning about these things some time ago. Imagine a person who needs to cross a frozen lake in the wintertime in order to get safely home. 
And they can know, theoretically, that ice could support them. They can believe that this particular ice is capable of supporting them, but that knowledge doesn't benefit them unless they actually step out onto the lake and cross over to their home. This illustration helps us understand what it means to act on trust. It also helps us to see that it's not our faith that saves us. I mean, think about it. One person may have all the faith in the world that the ice will support them, but if the ice isn't thick enough, as soon as they walk out on the lake, they'll fall through. Their faith isn't the thing that gets them to the other side. Another person may have lots of doubts and fears, but at the end of the day, they have just enough faith to step out on the ice, and they discover it's a couple of feet thick, and it can easily support them. And so, it bears their way to cross the lake. The ice is what saves them. Their faith is what enables them to trust the ice to get them to the other side. But faith is not mechanical. It's, it's not a transaction. Saving faith is, is ultimately relational and covenantal, right? In faith, you are clinging to God through Jesus, by the power of the Spirit. You're clinging, you're connected to a Father and a Savior who love you. So what should this faith that, that, uh, that we have, uh, what should this truth that we're saved by grace through faith, not by any of our works, what should that do in our hearts? What's, what's the response to this gospel well, the first and, and most obvious thing is that when, when, we, when we hear this good news, we should put our faith in Jesus. It stands to reason. It's obvious, but, but we need to point it out. If, if you're here today and you're not yet a Christian, you need to recognize your condition apart from Christ. Everything that Paul says in verses 1 through 3 is true of you, just as it was true of all of us. The be- The beauty of the gospel is that you could have walked in this room today earlier spiritually dead, enslaved, and condemned, but you can walk out of here today forgiven and resurrected and enthroned with Jesus. And so all you have to do is is acknowledge, believe, uh, and, and trust that this Jesus can save you as well. And so before we go on, I'd like to just pause here. You know, one of the ways that we express our trust in God by grace through faith is through prayer, just a prayer of belief. And and there's a million ways that you could say this. There's not a magic formula for prayer, but prayer just is, is one way of expressing our trust in God. And so if you're at a place today where you're ready to do that for the first time, Uh, We're going to just pause, and uh, we'll project a prayer of belief up on the screen. I'll pray it out loud, and I would invite you to just pray silently where you're at uh, and trust Christ today. And if that's something that you do, I'd love to hear from you. Uh, You can email me. You can grab me after the service. I'd love to just follow up and help you take the next steps in your, your following of Jesus. And so let's pray this prayer of belief for anyone who is ready to do that. Lord Jesus, I admit I'm weaker and more sinful than I ever before believed. But through you, through you, I am more loved and accepted than I ever dared hope. Thank you for paying my debt. 
Thank you for bearing my punishment and offering forgiveness. I turn from my sins and receive you as my Savior. Amen. Well, for those of us who have already received this gift, uh, when we hear the gospel, every time we're reminded of the gospel, uh, it should cause us to celebrate God's grace, to worship. The gospel should inflame our hearts. We, we need to remind ourselves of it every day, to preach it to ourselves every day, to remind ourselves of our condition before Christ saved us, and, and to reflect on the grace that we've received in Him. And so, you know, practically speaking, as we gather for corporate worship, sing with all your heart. Engage uh, throughout the service. Don't sit passively, but engage in the worship with, with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And, and third, our third point, uh, for those of us who are responding to this grace, uh, we're, to recognize we're, we're not saved by our good works, but we're saved for good works. We're not saved by our works, but we're saved for good works. For it is by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, that no one should boast. Verse 10, for, for we are God's handiwork. We could translate that. We are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Paul has showed us who we are by nature, and now he shows us who we can be by grace. He's made it clear that our good works have nothing to do with earning our salvation. We don't validate ourselves before God. We don't commend ourselves to God for salvation through our good works. But he makes it equally clear that good works are a necessary result of our salvation. Our salvation is intended It's God's purpose, His intent, that those He saves, He also transforms. We live transformed lives. Paul's already said as much in the opening verses of the letter back in chapter 1. After his initial greeting in verse 3, he says this, "'Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For He chose us in Him, in Christ.'" Before the creation of the world, why? To be holy and blameless in His sight. God wants to change us to be like Him, to be holy as He is holy. In verse 12, He adds that God saves us in order that we who were the first to put our hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. This is who we are as He begins to transform our character, as we begin more and more to be renewed in the image of God in which we were made, as we begin to reflect God's character that is, that is uh, communicated to us. We're to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That's our purpose. Chapter 2, verse 10 describes our salvation in terms of creation. Not, not our original creation, but our recreation through faith in Christ. And the word handiwork or, or workmanship, it could be translated, was used in reference to a work of art. It, it's translated from the Greek word poema. Uh, it's where we get our English word poem. We are God's epic poem. You know, so, so much more glorious than 
you know, the Iliad or the Odyssey or Beowulf or anything like that, but, it, but, it, but an epic poem, do you think of your life as a story that God is writing, a beautiful masterpiece? Through you, He's telling something to the world. And like any good story, God wants your character to develop as the story unfolds. He doesn't intend to leave you at the end of the story where, where we found you at the beginning of the story. And so as your story unfolds, all the comedic and tragic chapters of your life are intended to form you to be this beautiful masterpiece uh, that God is telling. It's to transform you from a person who is spiritually blind and caught up in a lifestyle that lives for yourself to a person who knows God, who can see His hand involved in your life and in your world, and who more and more, increasingly over time, learns to align your life with God's intentions. Like a good author, God has planned your story with good works for you to do, to walk in. And rather than feeling fatalistic about this, like God has this plan and you're just following along on it, this should cause your heart to burn with excitement and anticipation because you're part of the story that God is writing for history. You have a purpose, a place in His story throughout time. Nothing, you can, nothing about you can possibly be boring. Nothing God gives you to do can be boring if God has given you to do it. If you're bored or apathetic or simply can't connect the dots to what God is doing in your life, uh, you might remember something that G.K. Chesterton, Chesterton said at one point. He said, we're perishing for want of wonder, not want of wonders. In other words, they're out there if you'll see them, right? Can you see it? Wonder at this. God has prepared just for you what He has given you to do in this life. No one else has your unique place in life, your unique opportunities. No one else has your unique strengths and weaknesses that cause you to depend on God in specific ways to work in you and through you. Nothing you do today or any other day can be unimportant it can have eternal significance because no matter what you do, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, you can do it all for the glory of God. It can be an act of worship as you respond to God's love for you by loving Him and loving others in how you live your life. Pastor John Bloom said, today you get the priceless privilege of reading with your whole being a verse, or maybe a few lines in the great poema of God that he's writing, while at the same time being a poema which God will recite forever and always remember. We're saved by grace through faith. And that gift of salvation, which we can do absolutely nothing to earn, that gift transforms us. Through faith in Christ, you are a new creation, renewed and redeemed to express the glory and the grace of God in how you live every day of your life. We don't obey or do good works because we have to, although God commands us to. 
We don't do them to earn God's love or favor. We do them if we've experienced His grace. We do them to express our love to the one who first loved us. We do them to respond to the favor that He's already showered upon us as our lives are recalibrated to glorify Him and to enjoy Him forever. Let's pray. Father, no one treats us like you do. Um, Everything else in life, it, it just seems like we have to prove ourselves. We have to validate ourselves. We have to earn it. And Father, if we blow it, we'll lose it. But that's not how you treat us. Father, we were dead, and you made us alive. While we were your enemies, you loved us, and Christ died for us. Jesus, we praise you that You who were rich became poor for our sake so that through your poverty we might become spiritually rich. Father, thank you that you sing over us. Thank you that you you look at us clothed in Christ and you see righteousness. As we affirmed earlier today, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Thank you that you've placed your spirit in us as the first fruits, as a down payment, as Uh, the promise of a full inheritance to come. Thank you that that inheritance is protected in heaven by your power, and we are in your hands. Thank you that no one can snatch us from your hands. Thank you that we don't have anything to prove. Help us to learn more and more to find our life, our value, our security, our significance in you and your love for us. And Father, would we be so captivated by that love that we can't help but respond with a life lived in love for you and others. Father, would other people see your love in and through us. Use us to be a blessing to others, even as you have been a blessing to us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.